0: Good morning, church family. I have the privilege of reading the word today. And um, and the version that I'm using um, is a Christian woman's version that we had. And um, it starts in this little bracket. It's called, Jesus prays for all believers. That's us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they—sorry—that um, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is God's word. um, Our ears be open to hear what he has given to Chris to share with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carol. Well, keep your Bibles open there or your screens on or whatever it might be. And um, yeah, John chapter 17 is what we're going to be having a look at. In particular, uh, a couple of verses in the reading we just had read out for us. Um, but uh, I think if I was to say um, that cynicism is rampant today, it wouldn't be an overstatement, would it? Um, There's really no doubt. I think that's a safe uh, statement to make and to to boldly put out there that people are largely very cynical. I know I am. I once several years ago prided myself in that. I actually thought it was a virtue and um, (laughs) the Lord's been working on me bit by bit. Um, But think about how much information we get exposed to on a daily basis. Think about all the advertising products that We get exposed to, we see people selling and marketing and trying to convince us that we need. And I think we've seen so much of that sort of thing, and we've at the same time seen and heard so much promised, but hardly any of it actually delivered, that it's little wonder we become cynical. Um, We're used to hearing some of the most convincing speeches from some of the most sharp dressed, silver tongued politicians about policies they too promise to deliver, backed up by their impeccable record or moral character, only to discover a few months later, maybe a few years later, they're at the centre of some scandal. Um, and we, in fact, uh, like so many others, uh, we discovered they're, like so many others, they're corrupted. Corrupted to the core. Now, don't get me wrong, there is very much a place for healthy cynicism... Um, some would perhaps choose to use another word, but I think there's a healthy dose, dose for cynicism, particularly in a hyper-commercialised uh, society that we live in. Um, it can ensure, for example, that we might never get duped uh, or taken for a ride by anyone. But there is little doubt that cynicism is very much of our lives today and to the extent that it's become quite tripling. Um, if you're constantly cynical, it leads to a real sense of despair and, and hopelessness and you actually become a bit of a grouch, you actually become a bit of an annoying person to be around. Well, in recent decades, it's become the norm to suspect that anyone who claims to know the truth or anyone who claims uh, makes a, a truth claim or a statement of the truth is, um, is probably driven most likely by some other agenda. They're either driven by power uh, or money or something more insidious. For example, If scientists make the claim that there's no evidence for climate change, many of us will assume that they're probably on the books of some oil company or a global corporation, and they don't really want to uh, be restricted on the emissions and all that sort of thing, which are polluting the air and so on. They don't want those things imposed on them. So therefore, uh, they will find scientists that say what they want to hear. Others of us will question the truth claim of scientists who say that there is evidence for climate change. Well, why is that? Because perhaps we think that just, it's just a cause um, driven by a powerful agenda, um, who are trying, perhaps this group of people trying to set up some alternate industry, and in the end, who are we left to believe? You see, cynicism towards both those conflicting truth claims seems to be the response that most of us have. And I've heard it been argued that perhaps somewhere in the middle lies the truth, but that doesn't justify being cynical. Well, think about it for a moment in the context of what we do as the body of Christ, as the church. When someone called to preach or proclaim or to lead proclaims that the only way to God is through faith in Jesus Christ and that uh, any other salvation offered by any other means, by any other person, through any other religion, is not the way and in fact leads only to destruction and ultimate judgment. Think about what happens when that sort of statement's made in a cynical context. Or or when church makes a public stand on some moral issue that seems to infringe upon people's so-called freedom of expression. People naturally dismiss those things as self-serving, don't they? In in many cases, they say it's actually self-serving arrogance to make those kinds of truth claims. Um, It can be said today, and I think this is spot on, perhaps the greatest social crime of our age is to be intolerant of anyone that has a different view to us. That's what we all seem to hear. We sort of have this ideal of creating a tolerant society and therefore anyone who has an opposing view is deemed to be intolerant. So it becomes easier to be cynical towards truth claims made by anyone. Well, there's been a massive shift in society in recent decades, and many of you will be aware of this, perhaps uh, in subtle ways, perhaps really obviously, because you've really followed it. Um, Perhaps some of you are just don't have an idea maybe this morning this might be able to help uh, help us understand a little bit about what's happened and what's happening in our society and our society has been through a rapid shift it's taken decades but by um, shifts in society terms go in terms of history that's very very quick Uh, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years and this is a shift that uh, bible teachers particularly preachers those leading god's churches in any capacity um, have really had to wrestle with And the contention has been this over the last 20 or 30 years is navigating the shift from proclaiming and declaring our faith as absolute truth uh, or expecting people to to engage and encounter with our absolute worldview of the Scriptures to perhaps communicating those same absolute truths and worldview from the Scriptures by way of story or narrative. And it's a way, it's an attempt to try and draw people into coming to an understanding of the truth without feeling as though someone is belligerently making a truth claim. Now, think about how it's normally been, and perhaps you're familiar more with this. For decades, all we've had to do as the church was to teach the truth and to do so in a convincing way that people would hear it, that they would understand it. It was a very cognitive thing, and therefore they would respond accordingly in all good righteousness. It was that simple, right? And yet at the same time we've continued to do that, at the exact same time, simultaneously even, um, we've seen the decline in, in church numbers and church attendance, church participation right across the board, particularly in the West. You see, the massive shift in society and in the way that people now hear and learn and respond to the truth cannot be overstated. In fact, it's taken decades and in some place it's still going for the church to fully understand that people today are just far too cynical to give any time or interest in simply hearing someone tell them the truth, flicking a switch and understanding it, choosing to go and live accordingly in all good righteousness. So, what has been a way forward? Well, firstly, I want to suggest this morning that, while people may not be seeking the truth from any one particular source or authority figure today, what people do continue to crave for, from leaders in particular, and from everyone, really, but from leaders in particular, is authenticity. Authenticity from the person or the people who make a claim upon the truth. Authenticity which demands a more measured account of the absolute claims that we make. The second way forward is this, that instead of looking for absolute truth or a single worldview that we all know people do look for today, oh, sorry, what we do know that people look for today, it's perhaps more about a sense of belonging and a sense of Identity before they commit themselves to any particular belief or lifestyle. You see, this shift um, that's taken place many years ago from believing truth because someone in authority said so to seeking a sense of belonging and identity in an authentic community isn't actually a new fad or passing trend when we look at history. It's a foundational and all-encompassing shift in the way that people think, in the way that people listen, in the way that people hear the big difference between listening and hearing the way they learn and the way they act and if we as the church don't continue to wrestle with this shift wrestle with this change and seek God's leading and how we're to respond to it then we'll only continue to see a rapid decline in church participation and attendance in the way we, we gather Um, Over 20 years ago, I first came across the saying, maybe some of you have heard this, um, perhaps you have, uh, that the church needs to switch their focus from getting people to believe the right stuff before they can belong to the church. You know, you couldn't actually feel part of the church because of all the things you had to believe. You've probably heard it from people that go, oh, you go to church, I wouldn't step foot in a church, uh, aside from the roof caving in or some sort of um, cliche like that. The, The reason why is because I think I have got so much... To get my head around that i either disagree with you or i've already dismissed that i couldn't possibly tick all those boxes and therefore be able to join or participate with your church and so belonging before believing has actually become a new catchphrase in the last couple of decades and it's actually a really good one belonging before believing it's a challenge for us as the church as we seek to reach into our community and connect with people. Can I say, I have already seen much fruit born from churches that actually embrace that shift and start to say, you know what, it's really about who we are as a community gathered around Jesus Christ, filled with God's love, empowered by his spirit. That's the radical, radical life that people really want to be a part of and want to belong to and find their identity in. And we need to enable them to do that, welcome them, and as we'll see, include them in the next coming couple of weeks as we go through this series together. The point is this, cynicism is rampant today in response to anyone making an absolute truth claim about anything and yet at the same time people crave authenticity and they crave a sense of belonging and a sense of communal, uh, communal belonging and individual identity. And then they'll consider and then they'll be in a position to understand what truth it is uh, that motivates the community they come into. But uh, I loved what John said just before he led us in prayer this morning because it ties so uh, much into this. Um, Take comfort from this church because no shift in society, no matter how dramatic and how massive it is or how quick it is, has ever taken God by surprise. Not once. Um, No shift in society takes God by surprise. No shift in society threatens to derail his sovereign plans and purposes. Um, That is the, the absolute beautiful wonder of our God that he will, despite our best efforts to do the opposite, he will always bring his will to bear in this world. He's done it through Christ and we await for him to complete that in Christ's return. So it's we who need to humbly seek God and be guided by him through such a shift. We need to seek him and ask for his help to better navigate our times and discover new ways to continue professing the faith that we know and have put our hope and trust in through Jesus. Well, this morning's theme, for those that may not have been here and you wonder what this has to do with uh, John chapter 17, uh, we're going through a theme theme of what it means, or a topic, a series of what it means to be a gospel-centered church. And we're looking over these next couple of weeks, specifically at community, what it means to be a community. And this morning is all about being uh, a persuasive community, a community that persuades others towards uh, the truth, the life-saving truth that we know. In the Lord Jesus Christ. A persuasive community is one in which people will want to belong and participate in. It's a community that will help people find their identity in God and in his son Jesus Christ. They'll discover that all these other identities they've been encouraged to find themselves in are inward looking and they're all part of the actual problem that they need help from outside of themselves and that they can find their identity in who they are in Jesus Christ. A persuasive community is is authentic and living out uh, what they claim to know and believe. There's there's, there's not a disconnect between what they're saying and what they're doing. And and the passage of Scripture that we heard read this morning from John chapter 17 captures for us a very important and intimate time in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, between himself and his disciples. It's an intimate conversation that he's been having with them uh, since chapter 14 is when it began. And it's a turning point in the ministry of jesus it's kind of like jesus sitting them down and saying that they've, they've just they've just understood who, who who jesus was peter's just made a declaration in i think it's chapter 13 that jesus is the messiah and the disciples have finally twigged on that wow this is who we've been following and this is who we've been listening to and they're still coming to terms with that and so jesus now sits them down and over these uh three or so chapters from 14 to to 17 we, we we're let into and in your bible it'll be they'll all be in red because it's all Jesus speaking, and we're led into this wonderful, intimate conversation between Jesus and these disciples. And it's in this passage that we see what Jesus had in mind with regards to his disciples forming a persuasive community. Well, chapter 17 of John's Gospel is the final prayer at the end of Jesus pouring his heart out to them as his disciples, as he prepares them for the horrific road that he's about to face which would have resulted in his death, uh, his, uh, his fake trial, and his brutal execution um, and so he's, he's preparing them for that and he, he pauses and he prays for them throughout that whole chapter. It's a prayer that John the Apostle who wrote this Gospel uh, would have remembered and wrote down as no doubt in hindsight um, so much was said by Jesus that when it all clicked and the Spirit came and revealed it further to them that they sat down, they would have written it down and God has preserved that for us, so today we get to experience that same thing as we read God's powerful word. And Jesus says this. I want to start just at the beginning of chapter 7. I want to read the first five verses. Uh, It's in your Bibles. It's not up on the screen. But this is what Jesus uh, prays for himself as he opens this prayer with his disciples. After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said this, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. This is Jesus praying for himself. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. These are massive, powerful, absolute truth claims. (laughs) I brought glory to you here on earth, says Jesus, by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Also, well, uh, Jesus prays for himself, knowing that he and God the Father are one and the same. And, and he's praying that by his obedience to the purpose for which he was sent, God might actually be glorified. You know, if it were anyone else praying this prayer, uh, you would probably lock them up because it sounds like they're sort of talking in some fourth person. Uh, You know, it's a little bit weird, isn't it? Uh, Anyone else praying this prayer, uh, that God would glorify them, we'd think it's a very self-serving prayer. But in these few verses, we see a profound mystery in the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. To glorify the Son, the Father will also be glorified. And by the way... How is the Son glorified? At the cross. At the cross. To glorify the Son, the Father will also be glorified. So Jesus prays for himself as he prepares to face his ultimate death and glorious resurrection. Well, then the middle part of chapter 17, verses uh, 6 to 19, we see Jesus praying specifically for his disciples, those gathered with him, the 12 uh, with him. And uh, these are the ones he had called and he trained to go spread the gospel. And he prays that they will be protected and strengthened as they go right out into the world and they continue on the work that Jesus began. They've seen what Jesus has done. They've heard what Jesus has said. They're figuring it out and he's preparing them uh, for what lies before them after his uh, death, resurrection and ascension to heaven. And he prays for them knowing that this mission will be dangerous work, that it'll be hard work. It'll be ministry marked by uh, suffering and even hatred from the world, that You know, no one's going to believe you, no one's going to listen to you. These are absolute truth claims, even 2,000 years ago, that they have been sent into the world to share and to make about Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, it's a massive, enormous challenge when you think about the mission the 12 disciples had, that Jesus expected of them, that Jesus commanded of them and sent them into. So Jesus prays that they'd be protected, and not only from the world, but they'd be protected from the evil one, as they go about the work of sharing the gospel and living out the kingdom of God. But um, the few verses that um, uh, Carol read for us from verses 20 through to 26 is the bit, as Carol said, where Jesus then turns his prayer and he says, not only am I going to pray for these who are here with me, I now pray, Father, for those who are to come. And that is a prayer for us, anyone who's been a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus between that time and now. It's Jesus' prayer for the church, if you like. And notice in our reading this morning that Jesus... um, He's praying for uh, all his disciples after the 12, and that includes you and I. And uh, this is the focus for this morning, the prayer of Jesus for us as his church. And for us as we continue the work of those first disciples to share the gospel, to take it out and to live out the kingdom of God. And here's the challenge. You see, we've taken this mission to mean it's preaching a whole list of absolute truths that we've got to get people to believe in order for them to understand who we are and to connect with God. We've taken this mission to mean that it's solely preaching the truth about God, knowledge about God, right understanding, the truth about who he is and who we are and as image bearers of him, as also as rebels against him. And these things are all true, there's no doubt. But notice very carefully what Jesus prays for in these verses. He doesn't actually pray for disciples like us to go out and preach doctrinal truth make absolute claims and get people to believe right doctrine in order to know him and if you notice it's really interesting of the things he speaks about he speaks primarily about unity and he speaks about love unity and love that's what jesus prays for disciples like us that we would be one in the same way jesus and god the father are one what a profound mystery that we would be as united together that we would be as the one body in the same way the Godhead is three but one. That's remarkable. Well, notice very carefully uh, that um, Jesus prays for this unity and uh, this is what he says. Have a look at verses 21 through to 23 and this is up on your screen. This is what he says. I pray, he says, that all of them may be one. Father, they would be one just as you Are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Why? So that they may be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus prays for their unity, our unity, and he prays for God's love to be known in us and seen through us. Here's the thing to see. Notice that twice in those verses, Jesus gives the reason why he prays for our unity and for God's love to be known. It's a unity which is to be the same kind of unity that, that, like I said, Jesus and God, the Father, share in themselves. And the reason for us sharing this same unity and making sure that we are committed to being the one body in Christ amongst ourselves Is for the purposes of reaching out into our community, of reaching out into the world and drawing people to a relationship with God through Christ. And the reason for us sharing that, so the world may believe that God sent Jesus and of God's love for his church. I found that really fascinating. Think about it for a moment. The purpose for oneness as the church, for our unity together as disciples of Jesus today, is so that those who are not yet disciples can see a difference amongst us and will want to be a part of it. And will want to come to to know the God and the motivation uh, of God's love that, that drives us and compels us to be so unified. It's that they would come to believe, says Jesus, in the good news that God sent him into the world and that God loves people. I want to suggest this morning that this compels us, surely, to be a persuasive community A community of people who are so unified and uh, so much in the same mind and same spirit in Christ that those we live amongst and work amongst will see that same unity and that same oneness and they'll come to believe in the gospel of Jesus. You know, this isn't actually the first time Jesus has said this either. I wonder how many of us have a very, very famous passage or infamous passage perhaps in our minds right now where Jesus said something very similar earlier in John chapter 13. Verses 34 to 35, he gives this new command. He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another to these disciples. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who's the everyone? It's everyone looking at disciples, everyone who are not yet disciples. By this, everyone who are not yet disciples will know that you are my disciples when you love each other, when you have this unity, this oneness, in the same way Jesus and God the Father a unified and one. Now the reality is we've known this for a long time but we haven't always got this right or done it very well but Christian community is a vital part of our mission as the church. Mission happens as people see our love for each other uh, and in the way that we speak to each other and the way that we act towards one another. Uh, we all know that the gospel is communicated both through words and deed, right? Uh, it's what we say and it's the lives we live and what Jesus is saying here is that it's the life we live together that really counts. That's got to be the first base. That's got to be the context into which people can belong, can share in, can find their identity in, in order to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and was sent by God into the world. In fact, that's most likely the first thing people will see and discover about us, isn't it? The words we speak and the lives we live. This is how people will come to to, to want to be part of our community. It will persuade people to find a sense of belonging and identity amongst the very body of Jesus Christ. Um, The two pastors who have written this um, series or this sermon outline, uh, this series in in the little book, and some of the life groups I know are studying and going through it. You may well have finished by now if if you didn't break over the school holidays. But um, this is what they say. They say, imagine a community of people who offered identity and belonging. A community committed to a truth that was truly liberating. A community who put the truth that believed into practice through the service of each other. A community that not only acknowledged its failures, but wove them into the fabric of its own story. Wow, that would be radical, wouldn't it? Not a community trying to play down its failures or trying to put on some pretentious moral self-righteousness, but a community that was somehow able to acknowledge their failures and even weave them into the fabric of their own story as you see God's grace poured into them and restoring and redeeming them. They go on, what a powerful witness that would be. What a powerful defence of the gospel message that would be. You see, we need to be communities of God's love first and foremost. We need to be seen to be communities of love too. People need to encounter the church as a network of relationships rather than a, a, a single meeting or an event that they turn up to and, uh, or a place that they walk into. In fact, I want to put it to you this morning that it's an even greater and more effective way of sharing our faith to have people encounter us as a community than it probably is for any one person as a non-Christian to have an individual one-on-one contact with any one of us. Think about that for a moment. Doesn't that put a shift in how we've often tended to look at evangelists amongst us? We go, oh, that's their job. We'll just wind them up and send that person out and make sure that they connect with the one or two and because they're, they're somehow able to get the truth out and get enough of it out and convince people and persuade them. I don't have to do the rest. I want to suggest it's the other way around and I do that on according to what Jesus is teaching here, that perhaps people need to encounter us in community, And that's going to bear witness, ultimately, far more powerfully than if they were to meet a one-on-one person. Because when it's one-on-one, and there is most certainly a place for that, absolutely, but when it's like that, we typically try to outline the truths that we want for people to learn and come to believe. But before that, people need to encounter this community. They need to see what these beliefs produce in us, particularly today with, with such cynicism that abounds. Uh, People need to encounter the community of believers, they need to get a sense of belonging, which in turn will begin to shape and impact their identity as they see God's love lived out amongst us. You know, when I was uh, putting this together, uh, and I've been pretty laid up this week, um, but uh, the Lord is good, and I was just reflecting, had lots of time staring at the ceiling, so I was just reflecting, I've got a cold thing, I don't just lie around staring at the ceiling all week, despite what some of you might think. But um, this week was genuine. I was laid up in bed sick. And um, I had a lot of time to think and reflect on different churches that I've been a part of. And this is, without doubt, uh, the church I've been the longest, uh, longest been a part of. And um, I got to thinking, and, you know, I, I, I could think of cases of people in every single church... You're not cases, you're people. Uh, every single church, in different ways, who have come to faith this way. And often, it's been definitely a miracle of God... Because some of those churches, I can tell you, would be the last communities I'd ever join if I wasn't serving amongst them, one in particular. And you don't need to know who that is. But somehow God still, through the small group of people that they met within that church, drew this person in, these people in this family in, and they got a sense of belonging, they found their identity, and eventually got to learn and discover the truth about God and about what he's done for them and came to faith in Jesus Christ, even despite the church. It was their belonging that came before their believing. They entered God's love through God's loving people, which led them to saving belief. Well, there's a challenge for us um, this week. And that uh, to quote the words again of um, the two pastors that wrote this, they say, it's not enough to build a relationship between one believer and one unbeliever. We need to introduce people to the network of relationships that make up that believing community so that they see Christian community in action. And here's why it's especially important for us today. Because our modern worldview is built upon the idea that truth is determined by human reason. You've known this, we've all grown up in this. Some of us have been in it for a lot longer. You know the idea that what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. We individually and autonomously, apart from anyone else, determine, self-determine what truth is and what we're going to believe. It's an individual human endeavour and you, you figure it out up here. And that fashions us actually into human individuals who've become creators of our own truth. And this, the issue is no longer whether something is true, but whether it is true for me. Yet as Christian people, a biblical worldview smashes that and encounters us with something completely different. A biblical worldview says that we were created in the image of God, first and foremost, that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to a creator. We were created in his image. Um, and as image bearers of that God, we were created to be in relationship with him. That's default. That's part of our DNA. It's who we are. We must be in relationship with God. And further to that, God didn't just create one person. He brought Eve to Adam and out of that grew a community. He created us for each other, for relationship with each other. Maybe it's time we lived out the kind of community that we were, were originally Created to be in and we have all people know that we should be well and truly focused on the first two chapters of genesis that portray that beautiful image of perfect or good relationship uh, between god and between each other and between creation and we should also be reading up the other end of the scriptures which points to the new creation the new heaven and earth that will uh, bring back that existence of good and right relationship between god and us god and each other god and the creation That's where where it is that that we need to be. Um, Maybe it's time also that in the middle of that, we saw how critical Jesus' death and resurrection is in that whole story. It means that with God's help, we can once again know the depth of community that we were created for. That we can experience relationship with others that God had planned for us right from the beginning before we made a mess of things and determined our own destiny and understanding of truth. I mean, really, that's why God sent Jesus into the world. That's why Jesus is here in this most intimate conversation with these first disciples. He was there to show us what the truth looks like in relationship with him to give his life as a sacrifice for our sin and our rejection of God, our failure to be in relationship with each other, to try and go at it alone, determine truth for ourselves. Uh, It's the same, different name, but same thing right throughout history. That's why Jesus came and promised those who would follow him that they would have fullness of life in relationship with God and with each other and with creation. Maybe there are some of us here um, this morning who can relate to this and who are already doing a really good job of of being their part in a persuasive community. I can think of many in our church community here, Uh, many that aren't known, uh, many things that are done, many things that are said that many others of us wouldn't know about, but they're happening. Um, People who are are sharing their faith in that way, in reaching out to their neighbours, in caring for them, and by the way, building relationships without necessarily waiting for an outcome, you know, uh, hasn't happened, it's been three months, I'm over it, I'm going to go connect with someone else. No, we need to be authentic in the relationships we build and trust the outcomes to God. I want to say if you're familiar with, with this, um, um, or, or if this is something you're not familiar with, I should say this morning, if you think, oh no, church has only ever been for me, I've always looked for a church that preaches the truth and that's it. That the people come second. I don't care who's who's preaching the truth or who's there, as long as they're preaching and teaching the truth. Um, and I know there are plenty of us, um, I grew up in a tradition like that, where the preaching of the faithful, the faithful preaching of the truth was more important than the people who were being preached to. And that's, they would never say that, wouldn't be in their mission statement, but that's what they were doing. That's the kind of churches some have been. I know some of us look for that. I hear people come and visit for a bit here, and they're looking for a church that Preaches the truth. There's too much people stuff happening here. I'm going to go find somewhere else. Well, off you go, and enjoy that search. Um, can I just say, if, if this is something that you know, you think I haven't experienced, that. I'm not quite sure this is this is actually right. Um, if you're keener to preach truth at people or have someone else preach truth at people, before taking the time to get to know them in an authentic re- relationship, ask yourself this: How's that been working for you? How many people have you led to faith in Jesus Christ that way? How many churches have you been a part of that do that, that are growing and thriving and mean something to their community? Or how many of them are just doing their little two-hour thing on a Sunday morning and everyone's just driving past, oblivious to them even being there, but they're confidently preaching the truth? God's Word needs to challenge us. I think I know the answer to that. I want to just say as we close soon, the most important approach to reaching people with the gospel is to build relationships first, regardless of the outcome, to share the gospel message in the context of that relationship and there's a whole other series we could go into on, on making sure um, or how we actually engage with people with where they're at, with which parts of the gospel uh, where we start, where we finish, where we end up and those sorts of things, that's a whole, whole other series for another time but we build relationships, we share the gospel message in the context of that relationship. And then thirdly, we need to include them and welcome them into our community, introducing them to others in our network of healthy, Christ-centred, unified relationships. I want to close with this illustration that may be familiar to many of you. Um, I first heard it from a a a Christian musician in Melbourne, Paul Coleman, and... um, I know he got it from somewhere else, but uh, it's a reflection of the everyday metaphor that Jesus used in the scriptures when he first called those first disciples. Uh, As we know, many of them were fishermen. That was their income. And in Matthew chapter 4, we see uh, Jesus calling uh, a number of them to come and follow him. And you'll remember the account of how the first two, Simon Peter... Uh, and his brother Andrew, uh, who were making a living from their fishing. And uh, the scripture simply says that he called them, come follow me, and immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And then it continues on. Uh, Jesus went on to call another couple of brothers, James and John, who were also fishermen. And we read that immediately they left their boats and they went and followed Jesus. And he said those infamous words to them, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men or fishers of, of people." And it's a wonderful everyday metaphor that they would have been completely familiar with that Jesus used to help them understand his mission. But I want to say, um, and I heard this put to us, that often we tend to think of fishing as a single line endeavour. I mean, that's how we fish, right? And it's something you have, you have a hook, you have a bait, and you have this kind of relaxing laid-back patience that you need to try and catch a fish fish one-on-one. But in Jesus' day, it was very different. It was done mostly um, by a large net. And um, it actually involved, before you even went fishing, many, many hours of hard work, tending the net, mending the net. That's what uh, Simon Peter and Andrew were doing when Jesus first discovered them. They were mending their nets. They were tending their nets, the scriptures tell us. And then after you spent hours upon hours upon hours preparing and tending the nets, then and only then, you'd cast the net out far and wide and you'd either do that from the shoreline or you'd do that from out deep in your boat and you would haul back the net towards the shore or towards the boat in the hope that there'd be some sort of catch in it. And you know, just like single-line fishing, most times there wasn't. I mean, think about it. You've got to throw the net, it's large, but you've got to throw it right above where the fish are. Um, And the fish have eluded mankind since the beginning of time so if and when you did get a a full net of fish well the work then even got harder the whole of bringing the fish back to the boat or or onto the shore was a case of all hands on deck everyone needed to be involved and heaving and trying to land the fish and the point is this that jesus had in mind a very different way of reaching out to and bringing people into his faith community into the church than what we've often thought and practiced you see, it's not a one-on-one individualistic fishing exercise, a kind of hook and bait sort of deal, or bait and hook in the hope that we would catch someone. It's certainly not a laid-back specialist ministry left only to the few passionately dedicated fishing evangelists. Rather, just like in this first-century metaphor that Jesus used, this way of fishing involved everyone. It meant hard work. It meant long work, often with little or no results. It meant intentional discipline. It meant intentional work. At um, And to push the metaphor even further, it means for us to be working hard on our networks, to, to be making sure our relationships are, are strong and healthy, are unified in Christ, that we've forgiven those that need forgiveness, whether they've asked for it or not, who have wronged us, that we ensure if we've wronged someone, we go and ask for forgiveness. We, we, we tend our networks, our, our, our connections, as the body of Christ. Our community connections which are often should be seen as those large nets need that constant mending and tending, as we prepare ourselves to be a persuasive community. Uh, you could continue with the metaphor, and you also see that um, generally fishing. Once you've got the fish, you stick a knife through them and gut them and, and eat them. Well, obviously metaphors only go so far, um, and that's certainly not uh, how fish were were fished in Christ's day. They eventually got eaten, but they were often, you know, brought in and and uh, sold whole. So, But that's another, another extension of the metaphor. The point is this. Think about the metaphor of being fishers of people, of calling people to discipleship, to follow the same Jesus that you and I follow. And think about each other that we've got, that we can connect with and use together to be a persuasive community that draws others into uh, who we are as the body of Christ, that they might encounter God for themselves and encounter Jesus and all the forgiveness and hope that he offers us. Let's pray. Father, we do confess this morning that uh, the challenge you've put before us is is just as difficult today as it was for those first 12 disciples. You've called us, you've drawn us into your family, you've washed us, forgiven us of our sins, you've declared us righteous before you, and then you've sent us into the world to live in such a way that draws people Towards you and towards an understanding of who you are and who they are. Help us to, uh, to be a persuasive community. Help us to be discerning in what we say and how we speak. Uh, may we not get um, um, may we not get complacent. May we not leave the work to the handful of or the handful of those who are passionate, the passionate few. May we see each one of us our part in this community here at Tari Baptist. We thank you that, uh, Father, your plan has always been for community, for people, not for individuals. Your plan has been uh, for a people to call and to demonstrate to the world uh, how you desire for all people to live. So help us to do that. Uh, Father, help us to recognise the challenges and to be mindful that we often do this, not shoulder to shoulder, but scattered right throughout uh, this place here, right throughout the Manning Valley. Uh, sometimes even further abroad with our our work, where work calls us, where you've sent us. Help us to see that as the place that you have put us into uh, to bear witness to Jesus. And Father, while sometimes that feels like we're doing it on our own, may we be mindful at all times of the value of church community, of who we are as a people, and uh, that we pray for each other and that we um, empathise with each other, that we think of the very vastly different situations many of us are in. Uh, in workplaces and in schools and wherever it is that you've sent us so father thank you that we get to do this together we thank you that uh, you're here amongst us as we get to do this and we pray uh, father that we would continue to be an even more persuasive church a more persuasive community we ask this not for our sakes uh, not for our glory but that you would be glorified where people see the good news of jesus your son and all that he offers them and uh, and all those who come to faith in him. I pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a song that was, um, for those who may not know, was actually handwritten by uh, a member of our church a number of years ago, um, Kim Bear. was a musician and he wrote this wonderful song about being family. And we've sung it here several times, but uh, it's very fitting for our series on community. So we're going to finish our worship time, uh, this part of our worship time, by singing that song.